Hello, and welcome to the Kotsk Podcast. I'm Jordan Wozniak. And I am Gavin Michael. Today's episode is Episode 5, The Shift from Babylonia to the West and the Desperate Need to Reestablish Rabbinical Authority. Hello, Gavin. How are you today? Jordan, I'm doing absolutely fine. And how are you? Very well, thank you. We're in a bit of a heat wave here, so I'm... Uh, you know, looking forward to some cooler weather, but not too much cooler. <laughs> not like a South African winter, maybe. We'll see. Um, well, I was hoping you would give us a bracha so that we could get some of your warmth where we are right now. <laughs> okay. I mean, we could swap seasons once in a while. Do you we'll give brachas? Do out. Canadians give brachas? Uh, I don't think that I'm qualified to give a bracha, even if Canadians do. <laughs> well, I think so, you're very qualified so- to give brachas. I'll accept a bracha from you any day. Okay, thank you for the endorsement. But in any case, today, I think the bracha that we'll have is a, to delve into some interesting Jewish history today. This is an area of Jewish history that's always really fascinated me because, um, you know, we know now, uh, we have this historical sense, I think, when modern Jews think about recent Jewish history, um, for those of us who are Ashkenazim, we think about the old country, we think about Poland and Russia, or maybe Romania and Hungary. And uh, we think of the sort of center of gravity in the era before ours of the Jewish world being uh, Northeastern Europe. But of course, it wasn't always Northeastern Europe. For Ashkenazim, before it was Northeastern Europe, it was Northwestern Europe. And uh, for the entire Jewish world, before it was Northwestern Europe, it was you know, Southern Europe, it was Spain and Southern France and Italy and North Africa. And then before that, it was Babylonia. And so as someone who's really interested in Jewish history, I've been fascinated by these transitions. How is it that the the center of gravity, the kind of focus of the Jewish world shifted over time from the Middle East more broadly to Europe more broadly? And that's what we're going to talk about today um, based on uh, your blog post on this subject uh, about how the authority of uh, Jewish leadership transitioned from Babylonia. So I think that you'll agree with me that the, the central figure at the beginning of this story is Hai Gaon. And we should probably talk about who Hai Gaon was and uh, why it was so important what happened after he died. Right. So your point, Jordan, once again, is a, a very valid point. A very distinct shift took place from the, as you say, the sense of gravity being in, in Babylonia, where it, it had been so for probably 1,500 years from the destruction of the uh, first temple in 586 BCE. And round about uh, the year 1000, in fact, 1038 to be more accurate, um, Rav Haigaon died. Rav Haigaon was the last of the Goinim or the last of the rabbis of, of um, the Babylonian era. So he, he becomes a very pivotal figure because he signifies essentially the last of the Babylonian rabbis, the last of the, the Goinim who held the mantle of, 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 of Torah leadership and Torah scholarship in Babylonia. And slowly, slowly Babylonia started to disintegrate politically, economically, even religiously, halachically. And... Um, the Jews had already started moving away from Babylonia to the west, settling in parts of, of Europe and in North Africa. And it, it, it was a very, very sort of transient period because besides the geographical shift, we were also moving from 
one rabbinic period to another period. We were moving from the period of the Go'onim to the period of the Rishonim. And the Rishonim, um, Rashi was born in 1040, Rav Haigaon dies two years before in 1038. And the, uh, the uh, uh, anniversary of Rav Haigaon's death marks the very distinct cutoff period of the Go'onim and the beginning of the period of the Rishonim, which means that Rashi would have been born as one of the, the early, one of the first Rishonim. And Rashi, we know, was born in um, France. So Ra- Rav Haigaon signifies um, that, that, that shift from Babylonia to Europe, in other words, from east to west. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the period of the Geonim, it's it's I like to think of it as kind of the continuation of the Talmudic era after the Talmud was, you know, we could say canonized or closed. So the the Geonim, Rav Hai Gaon being the the last of the of the prominent Geonim, is he is the inherit he is the successor um, uh, uh, or the heir, you could say, of the rabbis who are named in the Talmud, the rabbis whose discussions we read about in the Talmud, uh, who were the heads of the academies of Babylonia in you know the 300s and 400s. Um, after the, after the 400s, we stop hearing about in the Talmud about specific rabbis. We have a kind of layer of text that goes over the Talmud that was written by anonymous rabbis, probably for another hundred years or more, and then these rabbinical academies. Uh, continued on right after the close of the Talmud and gave rise to this period of what we now we now refer to the, as the Gaonic period and refer to the rabbis as the Gaonim, but they held the same role in the community that the named rabbis of the Talmud did. So it's really a Talmudic era. It's kind of like a post-Talmudic era that comes to a close with the death of uh, of Rav Hai Gaon. Would, would that be an accurate way of putting it? I'd say that is absolutely 100% accurate. The Talmudic period officially ended around about the year 500. Then we had the period of the Savoraim, the period of the editors of the uh, Talmud, because we were allowed to write the Talmud down for the first time in the year 500. The Savoraim then came. They they edited the uh, Talmud for a period of about 150-odd years. And after the Savoraim, we have the Geonim. And they continued, as you said, to Rav, Rav Haig. On. So essentially, it is a post-Talmudic um, era, but still very, very much contained within Babylonia and uh, continuing with the same ethos of, of Babylonian rabbinic scholarship. And then we have this period of transition from Babylonia to the West, which starts with a interesting story about, about piracy and kidnapping. <laughs> right. Um the shift was a very dramatic shift because while the Jews were living in um, Europe, still during the period of the Geonim, they would write letters, Shilas and Shuvas, to the rabbis of, of Babylonia. So essentially the rabbis of Babylonia, of, of Babylonia, the Geonim, were still very much in control of the halachic narrative. They had the final say, the final authority when it came to paskening halachas and um, Remember, this was also the time of the beginning of the codification of the law. So the Geonim were the last um, or the final arbiter, as it were, when it came to Halacha. But now there were more and more Jews living in um, Europe. And it was very clear that the centers were disintegrating within Babylonia. And they needed to create a sense of authority in the West, 
because Jews always need a line, a Masorah. They're not going to just trust anybody. And there was this very, very desperate need within Europe, within the, amongst the Jews of Europe, to, to show that the transition was a sanctioned transition. It wasn't just an accident of history. And that it was part of the divine plan that the center of authority should shift from, from east to west. So they tell a number of stories or there are a number of narratives that exist that show how this transition of power was sanctioned by God. Many people believe that some of these narratives are mythical. There is some historical truth to some of them, but as we're going to see, the accounts of, are, are very, very different um, as to how this shift was actually structured. But Essentially, in the year 1161, Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud, not to be confused with the Ravid who had the same name, they both lived at the same time, he's known as the Rabad, Avram Ibn Daud, wrote in his book Sefer HaKabbalah, he wrote an account of four rabbis who came from Babylonia, who were sent from the Babylonian Academy of Surah, Essentially, they were Mushalachim, we would call them today, fundraisers. And they were sent, mm -hmm. there were four rabbis, there were four scholars, they were sent to the rich Jews of uh, Europe to raise uh, funds and to raise money for the declining academies in Babylonia. And the story goes, according to Ibn Dawud, that just off the coast of Bari, which is uh, in the south of Italy, um, some pirates attacked the ship that they were on. And when the pirates, they were Muslim pirates, they were actually looking for Christian ships. But when they realized that they had a very interesting um, um, cargo of rabbis mm -hmm. on board, they realized that they could get a huge ransom if they would ransom these rabbis off at various uh, ports along the, the Mediterranean coastline. So they traveled to Egypt. In Egypt, they sold off one of their rabbis and they carried on further to the west, to Cairo, which is today what we call Tunisia. The Jewish community was in Tunisia and they um, ransomed off their second rabbi, who became the head of Tunisian Jewry. They carried on a little bit further, going in an anti-clockwise um, direction, and they arrived in Spain. And in Spain, they ransomed off Moshe ben Chanoch, who was probably one of the, the most prominent of all the rabbis in Spain. And he then becomes the leader of Spanish Jewry, and they continue a little bit further, and um, they make a connection with, with, with Germany, and they ransom off their fourth rabbi to the um, German Jews. And this story is told by Ibn Dawud to show that the um, shift was a sanctioned and authorized shift because now we have four scholars from Babylonia, the cream of the Babylonian crop, of rabbis, so to speak, who 
now find themselves in positions of leadership and they are well entrenched in Europe, in North Africa, and the shift has now officially taken place from Babylonia to the West. And what's and really interesting here also is that they, um, this shift, the way this story illustrates the shift is, is um, in the sense of it's a, it's a transfer of actual individuals. And I find that really fascinating. I and mean, we should probably talk about this story on, a, on another episode in more detail, but it, wasn't, it wouldn't be sufficient to establish authority just by saying, um, you know, so-and-so was trained in Babylonia and then, um, you know, or uh, so-and-so Spanish rabbi went to Babylonia to be trained and then came back. But it was just actually the people who embodied the yeshiva of Sura actually physically came. It wasn't just that their ideas came. They physically came to the West. Oh, that's a fascinating that's point that you make, Jordan. Absolutely fascinating because I've watched the growth of Judaism take place within various countries outside of Israel and outside of America. And there, there was a time where a rabbi from a foreign country wasn't respected in his country even if he had studied in Eretz Israel or in the biggest shivers of New York and America, you had to have somebody with mm -hmm. an Israeli accent or somebody with an American accent. In other words, someone who actually came from that place. And essentially, I think you would have had exactly the same thing taking place now in um, North Africa and in um, Europe because you had people speaking with Babylonian accents. <laughs> you know, had proper yeah, Babylonians, yeah. Babylonian rabbis heading up Spanish um, German, North African countries. All right. So now we have our um, four rabbis setting themselves up as leaders of the Jewish community in these various countries around the Mediterranean. So let's have a little look at Spain. Let's start with Spain. There was tremendous rivalry now between all these different countries. Before we just had Babylonia. Babylonia was ahead. Now we've got a number, we've got at least four countries now that have heads. So which one of those is the preeminent country? Which one is um, which, which one has more authority than, than all the others? It's just the way it works in uh, Halacha. You don't just go to a good rabbi, a very good rabbi, you go to the best rabbi. So which, which yes. country was headed by the best Poisek or by the best of these Babylonian rabbis? So we're going to see now how all these countries were they were going to tell narratives and stories that often represented um, um, a desperate need to show their connection to Babylonia. And each of their stories was mirrored by the other countries, which is quite fascinating and makes one wonder whether the stories that each country told were historically correct because the stories are going to be so similar as, as we're going to see. But the Spanish Jews were lucky because they, they found the Posuk. They found the verse in the, in, in the Tanakh from Ovadia. Ovadia mentions the actual word Svarad. The Aramaic translation of Svarad was Aspamia, which is Aramaic for Hispania, for the Latin Hispania. So they had right. identified Svarad as Spain. Now, this is wonderful because now Spain is mentioned in a posuk in the Tanakh. Right, right. As being a preeminent country other than Babel. And interestingly enough, 
Rashi, who was born and died in France, almost conceded to the authority of Spain on the basis of this pasuk, because undeniably Spain was singled out in this verse from the Tanakh. So God chooses Spain as a wonderful place. And the Apostle in Ovadia is referring to the exiles, the elite exiles from Jerusalem landed up in Spain. In other words, the best of Jewry after the destruction of the first temple ended up mm-hmm. in Spain. And the uh, descendants of those elite exiles became Spanish Jewry. And therefore, Spain had roots going back long before the story of the four captives or the Dalit Shvuyim, as they are called in Ibn Dawud's narrative. Spain has a Pasuk. And this shows, once again, that Spain is chosen by God to be the center after, after Babylonia. And all the other parts of Europe may have had exiles as well from the first temple, but they would not have been from Yerushalayim. They would have been from other towns and from other villages. But Spain had the, had the um, most authoritative, most important um, of, the, of the exiles. I find that really interesting that the claim of authority goes back to Bayit Rishon, right? To the first temple era. That, Correct. That, not uh, just the second temple. So the roots go back very, very deeply over here. Yeah, according that, to their um, claim, that really interesting. Yeah, and that that, that the um, you know that that the country would would claim you know we have our community was founded by exiles from the Babylonian captivity, and not only just Bab- exiles from the Babylonian captivity, but like the elite exiles from Yerushalayim from, Yerushalayim. from the Babylonian captivity, which is like an incredible historical depth, right? We're talking about people making claims about about movements of people fifteen hundred years in the past. Anyway, right. I, I found right. that very interesting. Very interesting. And that, in fact, is what Shmuel Hanagi wrote. Shmuel Hanagi died in 1056, and he writes that Sfarad, Spain, has become, or rather has been a place of uh, Torah study since the time of the, of the first base Amikdash, as you just said right now. Absolutely. So that's, that's what Shmuel Hanagi was fascinated by, that same idea that we Spanish Jews have been in Spain now for 1,500 years already. We haven't just moved mm-hmm. now at, you know, after the decline of um, Babylon. But many people criticize Shmuel Hanagid's declaration that uh, Jews have been there for 1,500 years because they said that Shmuel Hanagid was a student of Moshe ben Hanoch. Moshe ben Hanoch, as you, mentioned, as you remember from the story of the Dalit Shfuim, the four captives, was a student of Moshe, uh, was, was, was a student of Moshe ben Hanoch. And um, he... People suggest that he might have had an agenda to claim that his teacher had preeminence, uh, and this backed up that preeminence that it wasn't just the teacher. The roots went back 1,500 years earlier as, as well. But the historians aren't happy with that account because they claim that while some of the elite Jews may have come to Spain after the destruction of the First Temple, Spanish Jewry was really built in the mid-10th century under Chistai ibn Shaprut, and that most of the people living in Spain now 200-odd years later would have been from that period of um, Chistai ibn Shaprut 
and not going back as far as the um, you know fifteen hundred years earlier. Um, so historically, it's very difficult to trace the 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 origins of the Spanish Jews going back so far. There doesn't seem to be much trouble tracing them back to Chisai even Shaprut, though. Right. Um, then Shmuel Hanagid seems as if he came back with another argument to show the preeminence of Spanish Jewry, and he says, okay, the line of communication from Babylonia to Spain, let's find somebody in the middle of that period. And he actually finds someone, Rav Natronaigaon. Rav Natronaigaon died in 878 CE. And Shmuel says that on wrote down the Talmud for the scholars of Spain. Essentially, what's he doing? Rav Natronaigaon is showing the, um, or rather he's, he's, perpetuating that link directly from Babylonia to Spain, even long before, 200 years before the story of the Dalit Shfuyim. So there was a connection to Babylonia with a very prominent Babylonian rabbi, Natronai Gaon, connecting the Jews from Babylonia to Spain when Babylonia was still in its heyday. So that's that's a good connection that once again shows the preeminence of of um, Spanish Jewry. And coming to his aid is another Spanish rabbi, who supports Rav Shmuel Hanagid's narrative of Natra, of Rav Natronai Gaon, because Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda al Barceloni, he writes that how did Natronai Gaon come to Spain? And he answers, he says, through Kvitsas HaDerech, miraculously. In other words, he didn't just write the Talmud for the scholars of, of, of Spain, as Shmuel Hanagid suggests, but miraculously he was transported. And Al-Barceloni writes that no one saw him on this journey. He, was, he didn't come with a convoy. No one saw him arrive. No one saw him leave. Miraculously, he, he came from Spain, and the next instant uh, he, he came from Babylonia, and the next instant he was in Spain. Again, giving a sense of divine uh, sanction, as if God is saying, look, I want Spain to become the next center. And here you have one of the great leaders of Babylonian Jewry, Natronaigon, one of the great Ge'onim. Um, in many ways, he was responsible for creating the Babylonian Talmud as a dominant Talmud over the Talmud Yerushalmi, but that's a topic for another subject. But he's certainly a very, very important rabbi, Rav Natronaigon. And he arrives through Kvitsas Aderech in Spain. Um, there you have it. Uh, Spain is certainly greater than all the other countries, and Spain is the rightful heir to the Babylonian Talmudic um, schools, and therefore Spain now has the authority. So the, now the Spanish rabbis have, or the Spanish community has multiple, uh, we could call them, 
lines of evidence uh, in their support of this claim to uh, preeminence as the inheritor of the Babylonian tradition, because there's the story of the captives, there's this uh, translation of Sfarad as Aspamia in uh, in the Tanakh, and uh, and then this this uh, miraculous teleportation of the Gaon from Babylonia to Spain. But there are other countries in the running too. And one of them we should talk about, of course, is Italy, which is a very, I'm always fascinated by the story of the Jews of Italy, because in the modern day, the Italian Jewish community, though very old, is quite small. Um, And in, I would say it's safe to say in the last couple of hundred years, it has not been as prominent on the world Jewish stage as it was in former times. So what, what was Italy's claim to fame? Well, Italy's claim to fame was that they were incredibly dominant in, in former times. But listen to their claim. It's very, very similar to the Spanish claim. They don't have a posuk, though. There's no posuk that uh, singles out Italy. But they also claimed, the Italian Jews also claimed, that their descendants were the elite Jerusalem exiles from the time of the first temple as well. Very similar story to the story of the Spanish Jews. And they claimed, and this is something that's written in the uh, Megillat Yuchasin, written by Achimat ben Paltiel, that when Titus destroyed the second base of Mikdash, he took some of the elite captives with him back to Rome, and this showed that there was a connection with Rome already from the time of the second Beis HaMikdash. And these exiles from the second Beis HaMikdash were not just elite, but they were the elite of the mystics. Hmm. And they were the people who had the secrets, they brought with them the secrets of of the tefillot and of the davening. Um, So they were very, very special Jews because they were the custodians of these very, very deep secrets of, of connecting to God through prayer. Very, very deep mysticism. So the roots maybe don't go back as far as the roots of Spanish Jewry, but certainly from the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, we have these very, very special mystics arriving in Italy. Okay. But the Italian Jews were very respected by most of the other Jews. It's interesting because there was tremendous rivalry between Spanish Jews and German Jews, the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim. But there wasn't that rivalry between Italian Jews and other Jews. It seems as if the Jews from other parts of Europe really respected the Italian Jews, probably for for the reasons that we've just mentioned. They were regarded as being um, very mystical, very, very deep, and very, very authoritative. So much so that the French Tosophist, Rabbeinu Tam, who was a grandson of Rashi, he took a posuk from the Torah. And it's interesting because this might be a way of, 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 of relating a posuk now to Italian Jews, not just to uh, Spanish Jews, although clearly the posuk doesn't refer to, to Italian Jews. But Rabbeinu Tam twisted a posuk from the Torah. Ki mitzion Torah, 
the Pasuk in the Torah says that the Torah will go out from Zion, and Rabbanu Tam says, Kimi Bari, um, from Bari, from the port of Bari in the south mm-hmm. of Italy, the Torah will go out. And uh, Udvar Hashem, and the word of Hashem, as the Pasuk continues, from Otranto, which is another city in uh, Italy. So even Rabbanu Tam, a French Tosafist, acknowledges the preeminence of the Torah that was to come out of Italian Jewry. And we know that the Tosafists respected Rabbeinu Hananel very, very much. Remember, we said this was a time when Jewish law was beginning to become codified. Rabbeinu Hananel was an important link in that codification chain. And the Tosafists really respected him. He was of, uh, of, he, he, was in North Africa, but he was trained by Italian rabbis. And because he was trained by Italian rabbis, Rabbi, Rabbi Nuchananel had that sense of authority and was re- respected by the French Tosafists as well. So again, it seems as if everybody respected the authority of the Italian Jews at that time. I think of Rabbi Nuchananel as being kind of one of the, you know, in the standard printing of the Talmud, Rabbeinu yes. Hananel's commentary is there, right? And I, that could be because of the regard that the Tosafists had for him. And uh, and I, I think of that as it's kind of the oldest layer of commentary in a standard printed Talmud, I would say. Is that an accurate statement? I'm trying to think about it. Um, There's probably not, not anything older than that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but it could very well be. And so Germany. So now we're getting to those of us who are Ashkenazim and uh, trace our our ancestry ultimately back to Germany all by way of Poland and Russia and other points in Eastern Europe. But uh, this very important movement, the Hasidei Ashkenaz, not to be confused with what we now call Hasidim, the Hasidei Ashkenaz, who are the the pietists of Ashkenaz, I guess you could translate it that way, who were uh, very influential in their time. Right. They lived between the 12th and 13th um, centuries. Um. Rabbi Yehuda Hechassid and Rabbi Lazar of Worms were some of the leaders of the Hasidic Ashkenaz. A very, once again, a very, very mystical movement. Um, they took a lot of folklore from German culture and from the general mm-hmm. mystical culture. It's a fascinating movement, extremely mystical movement. They had a lot of influence over the Tosafists, who we don't really regard as being a mystical group because they 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 comment so much on the um, dialectics of the uh, Talmud. But the, the even the Tosafists were very influenced by the Hasidic Ashkenaz. Um, but here here we have our Hasidic Ashkenaz. They also respected the Jews from from. Italy, and they also made reference to the transmission of the secrets of davening and the secrets of prayer as coming through Italy. You know, it's from Yerushalayim mm-hmm. through Italy, and then listen to how it goes from Italy to Germany. It's a fascinating story. Rabbi Lazar of Worms claims that the Hasidic Ashkenaz didn't just start in the 12th century. It had roots, once again, going back much earlier. Remember, in Judaism, the earlier you can show your authoritative roots, the more authority you have. So Hasidah Ashkenaz, according to Rabbi Lazar of Worms, wasn't just a, you know, over a period of three, three or so generations. It had roots going back 
to the Goenic period. Interesting how they were also trying to show connections to the period of the Goenim. And they traced the roots of the Hasidic Ashkenaz to a Gaon called Abu Aaron. And they claim that Abu Aaron came from Babylonia to Italy, to a town of Luca. Mm-hmm. And he establishes a yeshiva in Italy during the period of the Goenim. I mean, that, that, that's a wonderful connection for Italian Jews to show that a Goen came and he didn't just come and visit, but he actually established a yeshiva in Italy during the period of, of the Goenim. And he's an, an important Goen. And his yeshiva was called the Sanhedrin Yeshiva. And from his yeshiva, the teachings spread throughout the whole of Italy. And while Abu Aaron is in Italy, he meets Moshe HaPaitan, Moshe ben Kloinimist, the poet. And that was Rebbe Lazar of Worms' ancestor. Hmm. And apparently Charlemagne was interested in Moshe HaPaitan because he was a respectful Jew, a poet. And he arranges, Charlemagne arranges for Moshe HaPaitan to go and settle in Mainz in Germany being one of the first Jews to settle in Germany early on in the time mm-hmm. of the Goenim store. And it's, the story is a wonderful story because it has, a, it has the sanction, maybe not of God in this case, but of Charlemagne, who was one of the you know, most, most important leaders. He united Europe at that time. And Charlemagne endorses the move of Moshe Python from Italy to Germany, and hence, the German Jews have established a very early connection with the Italian Jews, and everybody respected the Italian Jews. So now Germany is starting to rise in preeminence, and the Hasidic Ashkenaz can show that one of the, one of the ancestors of Elazar of Worms, one of the leaders of Hasidic Ashkenaz, have had roots to Moshe Python, who was connected to Abu Aaron, who came from Babylonia. So that is how the German Jews were able to trace their connection, their very early connection, back to um, Babylonia. Yeah. Before we leave Germany, we should talk about uh, uh, we should talk about Rabbeinu Gershon, mm. who is very very well known, one of I guess the best known of the, Ash- the authorities of early Ashkenaz. Let's and, not forget uh, about Rabbeinu Gershon. Well. Yes. Yes. Ab- absolutely. Um, he was known as the. Meora Gola, the light of, of our exile. He was the uh, rabbi who made the decree that one man, one wife, and a whole lot of other decrees as well. Um, of course, Rabbi Gershom lived in uh, Mainz. And the, uh, can, the, the allegation is made that um, Rabbi Gershom was taught by Rav Haigaon, the last of the Goenim. In other words, he was a student of Rav Haigaon. So, once again, that's a lovely narrative because one of the most important rabbis of Germany, Rabbeinu Gershom, is taught by the last of the Goenim. Hence, our connection between Babylonia and Italy becomes a very strong connection. Mm-hmm. But there's one problem, and that's a problem of the historicity of that narrative because according to Rabbeinu Gershom's own writings, he makes no mention to him being taught by Rav Haigon. If he was, one would have imagined that he would have mentioned it because he was the most important rabbi in the world at the time. And in fact, Rabbi Gershom mentions 
that his teacher was one Rabbi Leontin, not Rav Hai Gaon. So once again, one wonders whether that narrative is is a correct narrative, but be that as it may, that is a narrative that uh, some of the German Jews tell. And they also claim that Rabbeinu Gershom married the sister of Rav Hai Gaon. So he wasn't just his student, but he, he, married, he married his sister. Again, showing the connection between Rabbeinu Gershom and the Goenim. And they have another story that the German Jews tell as well. Um, they claim that Rab, Rav Meshulam of Ashkenaz once visited Babylonia, and while he was meeting the Babylonian rabbis, the Babylonian rabbis discovered that Rabbi Meshulam was more learned than they themselves were. Hmm. So they were wondering, why is Rabbi Meshulam coming to learn from us? We need to learn from him. And they wanted him to marry their daughters. Rabbi Meshulam of Ashkenaz declined the offer. He went back to Germany, and he became the head of Ashkenazi Jewry in Germany. And by telling this narrative, they, in a sense, are showing that the German Jews were even more superior to the Babylonian Jews. Not only did they have a good succession from Babylonia, but they were actually superior to the Babylonian Jews. These claims are fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So from Germany now we go to France, to specifically to northern France. And I think that, you know, the the most famous commentator of all time, as we mentioned earlier, is Rashi, right? The, he, he's, he is so well known because his commentary was so comprehensive on, on the Talmud or the vast majority of the Talmud, plus his commentary on uh, Tanakh. Um, and Rashi was born around the same time that uh, Rav Hai Gaon died. Rashi was from the Champagne area of France, right? He was from, from Troyes in northern France. And so there is a claim there for uh, the kind of continuity of, uh, of rabbinic leadership from Babylonia to northern France. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, there's an, another tradition that tells of Rabbi Eliyahu of Le Mans, who um, writes that it was very important for God to choose a successor to um, Rav Haigon, because he wasn't just going to leave the, the Jewish people. And the claim was that uh, um, the rabbis of northern France sort of fit, fitted the um, description of the successor. The problem with this story was that uh, this, this was written by Rabbi Eliyahu of Le Mans himself, that every generation needs a special leader. And he claimed that, therefore, mm. he was the special leader. Be that as it may, that was the claim, connecting northern France to uh, Babylonia. And there was also the claim that he married the sister of Rav, Rav Haigaon, once again, just like Rav Anigarishim. So this is where everything becomes so interesting because the narratives overlap and they are so, so similar. If you look quickly at the Jews of southern France, the Jews of Pro, uh, Provence in southern Fr uh, uh, France, um, they also claim that their connection to Babylonia uh, went back to the time of Charlemagne. And according to their narrative, Charlemagne asked the king of Babylonia to send a Jew 
a royal Jew from Babylonia, from the house of David, to settle in Provence in southern France. And the king of Babylonia selected Rabbi Machir. Rabbi Machir moved to Provence, and his, him and his descendants led the community in, in uh, um, uh, southern France for generations. Once again, it's very hard to find the historical basis for that. But nonetheless, it does show that, again, Charlemagne had a hand, just like we mentioned before. A- another overlap um, within these uh, narratives, Charlemagne gets involved and, in fact, engineers the movement of, 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 of a prestigious Jew from Babylonia and plants him in the heart of, of, of southern France, giving preeminence to southern France. Um, and so that claim, about, that claim about the royal descent from the house of David could be sustained because the leaders of Babylonian Jewry made that claim about themselves, right? That the, that the uh, Reish Galuta, right, the, the head of the, the exilarch, the head of the exile in Babylonia who represented the Jews on a political level, there was a, always a strong claim for them to be of the Davidic line. In fact, the Reish Galuta was more prestigious than the Gaon because the Reish Galuta they claimed came from the house of David himself. The Gaon was a Gaon because yeah. he was a great rabbi, a great scholar. But the, and, and the Gaon was usually in charge of religious affairs. The Reish Galuta was in charge of political affairs, but the Reish Galuta claimed um, a connection to the royal Davidic line, which um, if, if you can show a connection to the royal Davidic line through the Reish Galuta, which is what... Rabbi Machir would have been, you even have a more prestigious connection to Babylonia, not just through the Goenim, but through the Reish Galuta, through the line of of, uh, David. And I think finally, let's just talk about Egypt. Egypt tells such a similar story to this last story of Provence, where uh, it's it's almost identical. Here, Here we have the story... It's recorded in Divra Yosef that the Egyptian queen asked her husband, the king, to send people off to Babylonia and to bring people back from, to bring Jews back from Babylonia again from the house of, of David in order to establish a good line to lead Jews in um, Egypt. And uh, that story is just so similar to the story of of Provence that, um, you know, either it's a tremendous coincidence or they borrowed each other's narrative. But again, that was the claim of the Jews of Egypt showing a very prestigious line going back also through the House of David, through through the Rej Galuta coming from Babylonia. The overarching theme in all of these stories, Gavin, and all of this history is the desire to make the connection with Babylonia and the desire to make a claim about the authority of leadership for one particular region, because as you said, it's not enough just to be, uh, you know, a respected community or a respected rabbi, um, but you want to be the most respected community, right. the most respected rabbi, and the more evidence that you can marshal in your favor to support that claim, uh, the better situation you find yourself in. Right. But there's a problem with that. The problem is, to my mind, when one becomes desperate to show a connection and to show um, a line and a link. 
And one gets the impression just listening to all these stories that are so, so similar to each other. It's almost like the same story again and again and again. One gets the impression that the Jews were desperate to create a narrative of an authoritative link. And they needed to show that they had the correct Masorah, the best Masorah, not just an okay mm-hmm. Masorah, but that their tradition was absolutely flawless and they were desperate to do so. Um, with this desperation to show a Masorah, and one, one notices this even in the Jewish world today, you have new movements that have sprung up in the last two, three hundred years that weren't even around at the time of our narrative, you know, in the 1100s, 1200s. Um, new movements that came around about the 1700s, uh, the Hasidic movement, and after that we had the um, Orthodox movement, the ultra-Orthodox movement, incidentally is as uh, almost as old as Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. People don't realize that the Haredi movement hasn't been around since the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. It was a political movement established with a manifesto in 1885, and... Um, but these were all relatively new movements. But each of these groups, even Zionism and modern, modern Zionism, religious Zionism, all of our modern groups claim a Masorah that is better than the Masorah of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, Hasidim claim that although the, the movement was started by the Baal Shem Tov in the 1700s, that really their roots go back much, much earlier. And so do all of these groups. But this becomes dangerous. It becomes dangerous when people get desperate to push the credibility of their narratives just a little bit too far. And I'm going to give you two very, very quick examples of this, of this desperation to create a Masora. You know, a Masora is one thing if you, if you have a Masora. But when one, I don't want to use the word invents, but when one creates a, 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 a sense of a Masorah that lacks in historical facts and in historicity, it becomes very, very shaky because no one then after that can respect that Masorah. So if you look at the, the texts of the Me'iri, the Me'iri texts were only discovered in the 1800s. But the Me'iri mm-hmm. was a very important Rishon. He died in 1306. A very, very important Rishon. So one would have thought that when they discovered the Me'iri text, everybody would jump up and say, wow, this is unbelievable. We found the texts of a, one of the most important Rishonim. Let's regard him with authority. But a lot of the Jewish world, a lot of the re- religious world, completely disregarded the Me'iri and uh, didn't really want to base themselves too much on the texts of the Me'iri. Why? Not because they said that these texts were forgeries or that they were inaccurate. No, they said they were accurate. They were from the Mary. But they refused to accept them because they had been out of the canon of the Masorah for centuries. And they had been excluded because of historical facts, because of accidents of history. And now that they are found, they can, only, they can no longer come back within the Masorah. 
We could say that about so many other things in Jewish history too, right? We could say that about, you know, on our last episode, we talked about Josephus, Josephus's historical writings. And of course, Josephus also wrote essentially an interpretive translation or summary of the Torah for his Greek speaking readers. But we, you know, even though we have that, it's not part of the Masora. Similarly with Philo of Alexandria, you know, we have it and there's very interesting thoughts about, you know, Jewish philosophy in those works, but they are not dealt with because they were out of the Masora for too long. And, uh, you know, even you could even, even talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the commentary that they contain. You know, right. we don't know exactly who wrote those, but they are out of the Masora. And, uh, you know, this trend of, you know, unless you can show a definitive, you know, continual claim, a kind of new discovery or archaeology is not going to factor into the modern practice. Right. And and I was... I would take that even a step further. You're absolutely right with Josephus and Philo, how Philosoph follow, and with the Dead Sea Scrolls, etc., etc. But here you have the the Meiri. Everybody knows who the the, the Meiri was. He wasn't on the periphery. He wasn't on the hmm. fringe. He was within the genre of authoritative uh, Rishonic rabbis, and to exclude him is 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 uh, I. I think sacrilege, perhaps even more so than some of those other sources that you mentioned, although in principle the same thing would, would apply. Another example, this is an absolutely fascinating example that I, I just can't wrap my mind around. But it's recorded in the, in the name of the Chazanish. The Chazanish died in 1953. He was an anti-Zionist uh, leader who shaped the contemporary Haredi theological and institutional landscape of Eretz Israel, modern Israel today, um, recognized as being uh, one of the most important of the modern rabbis. Um, according to him, if hypothetically you were to find a Sefer Torah written by Moshe Rabbeinu tomorrow, mm-hmm. You go on a dig in Israel, hypothetically, maybe not that hypothetically, they discover all sorts of interesting things in Eretz Israel, and you dig up a scroll, and uh, you verify that the scroll is from Moshe Rabbeinu. All right. it, it was written in Moshe Rabbeinu's hand. Mm-hmm. And you lay that out on your bimmer next to, I know, Jordan, you're a laner. So you roll it out on the bimmer. And you want to lay it in shul, you want to lay from Moshe's Torah because it's a great Torah. I, I think everybody, every shul would love to have a Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu. And as you roll it out, you put it next to the Torah that you normally use and you say, oh my goodness, this uh, Torah of Moshe is, 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 is either slightly different or very different from the Torah that, that we use today. Right? Apparently, the Chazon Ish says that it will be different. There, there actually will be differences. Not there might be differences, but there, there will be differences. How significant, I don't know. But there'll, there'll be differences. Okay. What would you do? I can tell you what I would do. I would take my old Torah. I'd roll it up, put it back in the ark, and I'd say, thank you very much, and I'd lay in from Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah. I'm sure you would too. The Chazanish mm-hmm. says, no, you've got 30 days in which to correct Moshe's Torah Yes, to your Torah. 
right. Moshe's Torah must be corrected to conform to our Torah, not the other way around. And if you don't correct Moshe's Torah within 30 days, you run the risk of the Torah getting confused with other Torahs just now. Yeah, other shuls are going to learn from it and people are going to think, God forbid, that Moshe's Torah is the, the, the real Torah. So you have to bury it after 30 days because you can't keep a, an, a, an uncorrected Torah for more than 30 days. And you've got to correct Moshe's Torah within 30 days. And this I found absolutely astounding because it shows that when you are obsessed with, with the Masorah, you actually do more damage than good because you will come to a situation where you'll disregard the most important foundation of the Masorah, which is a Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu himself. And mm -hmm. uh, to me, that, that just shows how dangerous it can become when one gets over-obsessed with, 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 with a Masorah and one gets the impression, going back to our narratives earlier on, that the Jews in all of these countries felt a similar need to, to show the preeminence of, of their Masorah. Not just that the Masorah was a good Masorah, but the Masorah was the only Masorah. Not, not even just the best Masorah, but the only Masorah. And I think many Jews do that today. You know, our movement is the only movement. Everybody else is wrong. And with this desperation, not just to have a Masorah, but to have the best Masorah, one can sometimes destroy the very edifice that you're trying, that you're trying to build yourself. It becomes a very, uh, in some cases, a really thin thread to hang your... Uh, practice of Judaism by, if I can use that analogy, right? Well, it's ironic that that the Masorah can become a thin thread. Yes, absolutely. Because it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be the binding cord that links, you know, one generation of Jewish practice and Jewish people to the next. But in some cases, if you've, you know, if you've uh, are using events or people or texts of doubtful historicity uh, that are maybe the, the connection is very tenuous and easily disproven, then, you know, and you're basing your practice on that and your claim to authority on that, what happens if that thread breaks yes. or is shown to be non-existent? Then you have a real problem. If you'll permit me to quote a secular source on um, your very esteemed podcast, Jordan, um, I'd just like to share an interesting thing that I happened to read that was quite meaningful to me and I think resonates with uh, the topic that we're talking about right now. I was reading a book by Malcolm Gladwell where he speaks mm -hmm. about the inverted U curve. It's a very interesting theory that, that he, he speaks about. He says that, you know what an inverted U would look like? It's an inverted U. And initially, the more you have of something, the better it is. The curve rises. So if you're very hungry, you have a little bit of food, it's good. You have a little bit more food, it's, it's better. You have a little bit more food, you really begin to feel good. But you reach a point, and that's when you get to the top of the U, where uh, you know, more food uh, starts being not so good, feeling not so good. And if you have even more food, it, then the curve starts to go down again and things get worse. So Gladwell uh, makes, makes the point that no, no police, for example, in a, in, in a country is, is very, very bad. No, no police, if you don't have any police, that's terrible. 
a reasonable amount of police is good. But too much police can create a police state. Mm -hmm. He also shows, and I know because my wife is a teacher, um, I also used to teach. In fact, I taught in a yeshiva high school for 25 years. Um, if you have two little um, uh, children in a class, meaning little in number, mm -hmm. um, a small number of children in a class, yeah, sometimes it's good, but more often than not, there's a magic number. You need to create a dynamic. You need to have a certain amount of children. You have too many children, again, you reach the right-hand side of the inverted U-curve and things start to go down. So there's a magic number. Everything has a magic number. So um, it's good to a point. You push it too much, it becomes detrimental. And I think that one can say the same thing when it comes to the Masora. The Masora is good. Of course, the Masora is good. We wouldn't be here without the Masora. We're not even arguing about the Masora. Masora is the most important thing. Um, everything within Judaism must follow a Masora, must, must follow um, Halacha. There's no debate about that um, because otherwise we wouldn't be here having a, uh, um, uh, a, a, a Jewish Halachic podcast. So obviously we accept mm -hmm. the Masora. But one reaches a point where when one gets too desperate to show that Masora, one reaches that point on top of the inverted U where yes. when you push it any further over the hill, it becomes detrimental. And I think this happened to all those six countries in um, Europe. And I think this happened to the way we treated the Meiri. We disregarded the Meiri. We went to the right-hand side of the curve because we, because we claimed that he was out of the Masora. Who says if you're out of the Masora, you're no longer part of the Masora? And we did that, I think, even worse when it came to Moshe Rabbanu's Torah, that we disregard the most important link in the Masora. We were prepared to disregard. My goodness, that's the very, very bottom of the, of the um, inverted U curve, where we prepared to actually bury the Torah written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Yes, yes. That's a really good point. On that note, thank you very much, Gavin. This is a, this period of history is a particularly interesting one to me, and uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. I love talking to you, Jordan. Thank you very much. Take care. All the best.